Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Students get suspended or expelled all the time from schools. But what happens to them after they're gone? What are the long-term consequences of school discipline on these children's lives? We're going to talk today with the professor of criminal justice, whose new book takes a deep dive into the school-to-prison pipeline right here in southeast Michigan. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, thanks for joining us. What do you do as an educator when a student does something really bad while they're in school? Maybe they get into a fight, maybe they're caught with drugs or bringing a weapon to school. You might be thinking it's an obvious answer. You suspend or you expel that student. That, of course, is the conventional wisdom in many school districts. But my next guest says suspensions and expulsions might not be the answer. Dr. Charles Bell is an assistant professor of criminal justice sciences at Illinois State University. And he's the author of a new book based on more than 150 interviews in and around Detroit that look at the possible harm that this kind of punishment can cause, especially for low-income kids and students of color. In Suspended, Punishment, Violence, and the Failure of School Safety, Bell says, quote, punishment is meant to be a disciplinary tool that makes schools safer, but aggressive use of suspensions does the opposite. Dr. Charles Bell joins me now to talk about his research and what kinds of disciplinary actions might be better. Dr. Bell, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me today. So we we talked a few years ago, just as you were kind of beginning this inquiry into what happens after kids are suspended or expelled. Uh, Now that research has produced... Hello? uh, Yes. Are you there? Can you hear me? Okay, we are going to try to reestablish a connection with uh, Dr. Charles Bell. Uh, As soon as we get him back on the line, we'll continue that conversation. Uh, Meanwhile, let's get going on the phones while we're waiting to to get that line back connected. Uh, Give us a call and let us know if you think there are circumstances where suspending or expelling a student is necessary or good. And what would you think if schools ended these kinds of punishments in most situations? What if we didn't throw kids out of school because of their misbehavior? What if we came up with other ways to try to include them more in the schools that they're in? If we found ways to get justice in a different way uh, when somebody misbehaves. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter 
and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We do have Dr. Charles Bell back with us uh, I, I, momentarily, at least. We will have <laughs> Dr. Charles Bell back. Uh, again, meanwhile, uh, give us a call and let us know what your experiences are with school discipline, either here in Detroit, in Detroit public schools, in the many charter schools that we have in the city of Detroit, uh, also in private schools uh, around our community. Uh, Give us a sense of what your experience is like uh, with discipline and the consequences, the long-term consequences of the discipline that uh, gets meted out against, uh, against children. Uh, and remember, we're talking about kids. We're talking uh, about people that we don't hold responsible in the same way for their actions or their behavior as adults. But the things that we do when they are children often have consequences that reach into adulthood. And that is what uh, uh, Dr. Charles Bell's book is about that prison, uh, I'm sorry, school-to-prison pipeline that takes shape around the idea of school discipline first gets kids in a cycle of behavior and retribution, behavior and consequence, uh, and often results in them being uh, a huge part of the criminal justice system, a huge part of Uh, our criminal justice problems in this country, at least in my opinion, uh, find their roots in schools and in school discipline. So again, give us a call and let us know how you're interacting with schools. We want to hear from you if you're a parent and somebody who's dealing with school discipline uh, in the context of your child, uh, but also want to hear from you if you are somebody who works in a school environment? Are you a teacher? Are you an administrator in a school or a school district? Try to give us a sense of how you deal with these things. Uh, There are a lot of innovative programs going on. There are a lot of ideas about how to handle this differently that are taking root in many schools I know in our community. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation already. Of course, the phones are lighting up. Not a surprise. This is an issue that I think a lot of people deal with and think about. We will get to your calls uh, very soon. But meanwhile, we do have Dr. Charles Bell back on uh, the line with us. Dr. Dr. Bell, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for sure. having me. Sure. So uh, as I was saying before, you and I had a conversation a few years ago when you first started out with uh, this research into what happens to children who are suspended or expelled from school. Now that research has produced a book uh, about it. So Let's start with what you learned in that about two, two and a half year uh, time frame uh, uh, about what happens and why when this issue is, uh, is, is coming up. 
Yes, and thank you so much for asking this question. So I think when I first started this study, I was really interested in a variety of things in terms of how suspensions impact students' grades, their social status, uh, parents' employment, and then their perceptions of metal detectors, school guards, and law enforcement officers. And what I've learned so far is that uh, many of these students are receiving suspensions not for the sort of violent offenses that we think that suspensions are traditionally used for, the, the weapons possession or even fighting to some degree. A lot of the students that I interviewed were receiving suspensions for very minor offenses or even a complete misinterpretation of their behavior. Hmm. So I had a student, for example, who I got a five-day suspension for giving a student a hug as they were leaving school. Hmm. Or I had another student who received a three-day suspension because there were typically fights in the lunchroom, and he removed himself from the lunchroom and stood by his teacher's class. So he had a three-day suspension for skipping lunch. So it's just those sort of misinterpretations of students' behaviors and very minor violations that have resulted in very lengthy and sometimes illegal school suspensions. Wow. Wow. Um, So let's talk about the effects of the expulsions or the suspensions on students, the the things that, that over time... Uh, shape their shape their lives and make a difference beyond the the, the seriousness in many cases of uh, the things that they might have done. Mm-hmm. And what I found in terms of just the impact of the suspensions, uh, many students their grades declined sharply. Many parents lost their jobs because of this school suspensions, and I think. I don't think school officials really recognize that when you call a parent at 11 in the morning or noon for a really minor offense or some sort of disagreement or even a misinterpretation of the student's behavior, that parent is typically at work. So they have to miss work and come to the school. And most parents are working nine to five. They can only leave work so many times. Mm -hmm. So I've had parents who've left work several times and they were told just not to come back because of the suspensions. Wow. Wow. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, this book is based on more than 150 interviews with people in and around Detroit. Uh, and I said, uh, again, that you and I have talked in the past on this show about these issues in your your research. Um, but tell me more about these 150 interviews. Who did you talk to? And what were what were some of the trends and and uh, issues, systemic issues that, that jump out at you. Can you repeat the question? I could not hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I, I was saying that uh, at the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned that you've talked to 150 people uh, in, this, in this research. I'm wondering if you can tell us just a little more about the, 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 the things you learned, uh, the things that you saw that were trends, systemic issues that may have jumped out at you. Yes. So specifically uh, with students with special needs, uh, behavioral disabilities, I found that they were often suspended in violation of state and federal law. A lot of them had individualized education plans, and their parents had taken off work to get their IEP complete. They brought all the necessary stakeholders to the table. And then once they had the IEP complete, they thought the suspensions would end, only to find out that the suspensions did not end. And they actually continued and were sometimes even longer in response to that. 
also found that students with special needs received illegal suspensions. Mm. So um, they violated these sort of federal laws. A lot of times the students didn't receive hearings. That one student that I interviewed, and he received a suspension on April 7th in 2017 or 18, and his teacher called him a failure. And in response to that, he ended up punching a gated window, Mm. and he received a sort of de facto suspension. He was pretty much told not to return until he had a hearing. However, there was no hearing scheduled when I interviewed him a month later in the middle of May, and he's just literally sitting on his porch. He doesn't know his rights. He doesn't know that he should be in school and that it's illegal to suspend children without hearings. Mm. So when I sent somebody to his school to intervene on his behalf, they intervened and sort of ended this 39-day suspension, which violates the due process clause in the 14th Amendment. It violates these, you know, Gosby Lopez Supreme Court decision, you know, his federal protections as a special needs student are violated, and the Michigan Code of Student Conduct is sort of violated here mm-hmm. that calls for this you know, long-term suspension and uh, hearings as well. I'm talking with Dr. Charles Bell. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice sciences at Illinois State University, and he's an author of a new book called Suspended, Punishment, Violence, and the Failure of School Safety, which focuses on schools right here in and around Detroit. We're talking about the consequences of expulsions and suspensions of children uh, when they misbehave in school. What happens to them after they're put out of school? Uh, We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about the idea of coming up with alternative ways to deal with children's behavior in schools? Uh, Do you think we ought to be thinking about different ways to be able uh, to respond to inappropriate or maybe even dangerous behavior uh, that students might engage in. Um, We especially want to hear from you if you're a parent and dealing with these issues with a child that you have enrolled in a school here in Metro Detroit. uh, What do you see in terms of the kinds of discipline that gets meted out? Uh, We also want to hear from you, though, if you're working in a school environment, if you're a teacher or an administrator How do you deal with these things in your school? Have you come up with alternative ways to deal with behavior? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Sue in Brighton. Sue, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. And this really resonates with me, this whole conversation. My son, who goes to a public charter school um, in Howell, Michigan, he has over 50 suspensions. He's in third grade now, but most of the suspensions, you know, took place before the lockdown. So he was in kindergarten and first grade. He has an individualized education plan, Mm -hmm. and he's also gifted. And... um, they definitely violate, you know, his rights all the time. They shouldn't be suspending him for his disability. And they do constantly to the point where I had to change my job. I had to quit my job because he was getting suspended so much and take a different part-time job. Hmm. So, Sue, give me a, a, an idea of the nature of these suspensions. What is your son being suspended for? 
Well, I have a great example. So he, one time he, um, he's got PTSD. He struggles with controlling his body, which most, you know, honestly, most kindergartners and first graders do. But this, this was in uh, the first part of first grade before we got into lockdown. And he got suspended for destru- destruction of school property because he was breaking crayons. So he wanted to lash out at somebody, but he didn't. Um, he's been, you know, in therapy uh, for his PTSD. Mm. He was learning how to control his body. So instead of hitting somebody, he broke crayons, and they they suspended him for that. Mm. Wow. So uh, now, so this ahead. this really so this leads to you know fast forward to you know after the pandemic, we were trying to get him into different private schools because he is gifted. He's extremely high IQ, but when you're a parent and you have that many suspensions on your record um, and they just see, like, he was suspended for destruction of school property, they don't know the whole story. It prevents him from getting into different schools, even though he's qualified. Yeah. Uh, Sue, I'm at third grade. Yeah. Sue, I'm really sorry (laughs) about that experience, and and I was going to say, your son's only in third grade. There's a lot more schooling ahead of him, and, and it's daunting to think of what else you might face. Uh, Dr. Bell, I, I would love to get you your, your reaction to the story that Sue is telling here about her third grader. Yeah, see, it's, it's stories like this that are extremely tragic but are so disturbingly common. And I think that this is why we needed a sort of national discussion about school suspensions because – We've allowed a culture of punishment to just root, deeply root itself in public schools to the point where most school officials, from what I'm seeing, won't even consider an alternative approach because they've been suspending kids for so long that it's become normal, uh, which is deeply disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about discipline and children and schools. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones as well. Give us a call and let us know what your experience is with school discipline. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dr. Charles Bell. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice sciences at Illinois State University and the author of a new book titled Suspended, Punishment, Violence, and the Failure of School Safety, which focuses on schools in and around Detroit. We're talking about discipline discipline in the school context, what it looks like and what it means for kids who are the object 
the target of that discipline. Uh, what what happens to them after they're put out of school? Something that not a lot of people uh, sometimes ask or wonder about. Uh, Dr. Bell's book takes a look at the sort of narrative, up close look at what this feels like, what kind of consequences uh, are are following these kinds of disciplinary actions. As always, we want to hear from you on the phones. Give us a call. Let us know what your experiences are with schools and discipline. If you're a parent, let us know how you're interacting with your schools and your kids around discipline. Also, if you're a teacher or an administrator, we would love to hear how your school deals with these issues. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, uh, as always. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter or and put uh, put comments there, and we will include you in the conversation that way. Uh, let's go to Brandon in Detroit. Brandon, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm listening, and I, I, I and my heart goes out to the mom with the third grader because we have to remember he's really in kindergarten because he's been out of school for two years. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I work in a prison league. I work in a prison for 27 years, and I just and I worked in juvenile justice and all aspects of children's life. And now I happen to be an educator hmm. for a, a district. It's called University Prep in Detroit. Mm-hmm. But what I notice is no one is speaking about restorative practice and restorative justice. And so that's what we do with convicts. And at this time in my life, the age I am, I see our prisons not our schools not using the wraparound system. And if they don't have them in place, we need to get them in place. Because with the wraparound system, it also allows us to have things in place so mom doesn't have to lose time at work, dad doesn't have to be concerned about feeding a family, and it becomes a, 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 a group project, not just a mom and dad project which it was when we were coming up, when I was coming up, I'm 66 years old, Mm -hmm. and everybody was involved. You know, we can talk about all the, uh, you know, and I'm not knocking Dr., the the person that wrote the book, Mm -hmm. but my main objective is it doesn't start when they become a teenager. It starts in third grade. I've interviewed prisoners. I have people that are around me that have been in, prison for 20, 40 years, mm-hmm. and it didn't start when they became high schoolers. It started um, It started in, 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 in elementary school. Sure. The state of Michigan knows that it's a problem because my, we owned an um, infant and maternal health program, and they start caring for children in the womb, not just, medi- not just medically. We give moms. So it's, it's bigger than that, my feeling, because I've had an opportunity to touch on most parts when it comes to the family and children's dynamics. Yeah. So, uh, Brandon, I really, I really appreciate the call and the insight, especially the, the part of your life that has overlapped between the prison context and the school context. Uh, Dr. Bell, uh, talk a little about restorative justice in the context of schools and how we're thinking about that, but then also talk about this connection between the discipline that we see in schools meted out against children and what we end up with in the prison system in this country. 
this is a, another great question. And I think that uh, research tells us that restorative practices work for many issues. So restorative practices is literally bringing two parties together and really having a discussion about the harm that was in place, the infraction that was in place. And I think that uh, for the first issue is these dress code violations and things like that, I think a conversation would bring about an understanding of the child's environment, their home life. A lot of these children are coming from households that are struggling financially. So is it the right decision to really issue a suspension for a dress code violation? I think a lot of times a restorative justice practice would lead schools to rethink that. Um, I think a lot of times if we are investigating the child's home life or their environment, the trauma that they're enduring on the way to school, on the way home from school, I think it would help us understand the child much better and make a different approach to discipline. But we don't do that. And I think there is a sort of resistance to doing that, again, because this culture of punishment has just been so deeply rooted in our schools that we have just not even wanted to take a different approach. Mm -hmm. Just suspending kids has just been so easy for schools to do because they've been doing it for so long. Mm -hmm. So, So I also want to give you a chance to talk, before we get back to listeners, about the racial dimension of your studying and your work. Uh, African-American kids are disproportionately disciplined in schools. We all know that. Talk about how that has played out in the research that you did here in Metro Detroit. Yes. So many of the students and parents that I that I talked to, they characterize schools as sort of anti-black institutions because they criminalize students' hair, they, they criminalize students' uh, dress code, and they place children in these sort of environments where there's metal detectors, there's guards, there's law enforcement officers. But when the students really needed those uh, protections to come help them, they realized that the guard's not coming. I'm in a fight. Somebody's attacking me. I don't see a guard anywhere. Mm. That's what they're telling me. I don't see a teacher breaking up this fight anywhere. So now I'm forced to protect myself. And then when I protect myself, I'm suspended. I'm criminalized for self-defense. So for many children, they're telling me that I'm in a lose-lose situation from the moment I enter this school. From the moment I'm entering this school, I'm being uh, subjected to metal detectors, guards, law enforcement officers. And then in terms of just this, I think what was really interesting is that the students were connecting this to the entire sort of um, schooling experience for black children. Hmm. They're saying that I don't have textbooks, I don't have resources, and then I'm getting suspended in addition to all of this. So, and this is what is leading them to this sort of idea that schools are just resisting black people, criminalizing black children. And I think there's a history here that we have to reckon with as a society. We have to remember that before 1954, black children could not walk into a school with a white child. It was illegal. Hmm. And between 1954 and 1970, even after Brown v. Board of Education desegregated public schools, white communities resisted black integration into public schools. And it's no sort of a surprise that when black children first gained access to public schools in 1968, 1970, and specifically here in Detroit, where Judge Damon Keith forced Pontiac Public Schools to racially integrate. Right. Uh, the first sort of publication that shows the school-to-prison pipeline is published in 1974. Hmm documenting that black children, again, being sort of forced out of public schools and schools are being resegregated using school suspensions as a tactic. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments, Brandon. Really wonderful insight, both from the school and the prison context. I want to read a social media con- comment before we go back to the phones. Brian on Twitter writes, Every time I got suspended, I cared even less. There was a lot of sadness going on uh, at home, and it just made me more insulated. I went to Utica High School, and the teachers didn't understand that not every kid has an okay home situation to go to. Uh, Very sad story there from Brian on Twitter. Let's go to Glenn in Heartland. Glenn, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. I just want to uh, comment as as the parent of a of a child who went through school who uh, was essentially very low maintenance, got very good grades. The amount of resources and teacher time and administrator time that is given to these particular students who are repeat offenders is is absolutely phenomenal. And what gets left in the dust of all of this. Are, are the kids who either are gifted or who have abilities, and they're pushed aside because of all the time needed dealing with some of these students who, quite frankly, may not be uh, a good fit for a, a, a mainstream type of education. Hmm. And uh, my wife even works uh, in the office of a school, and the amount of time that she sees the uh, staff dealing with some of these, for lack of a better term, repeat offenders, um, is is just incredible. And how, you know, everything is done. And I myself am a graduate of the Detroit Public School System. And I, even though it goes way back to 1980, I recall the number of programs and efforts that were made in, in working with the kids who were not doing well, who were a classroom disruption, and a lot of us just kind of felt like, you know, we're disposable. Mm. Uh, Glenn, I, I love I love that you called and, and shared that perspective. You know, I mean, I, there are lots of different dimensions to this, this issue, and that's a really important one. Dr. Bell, I'll give you a chance to respond to Glenn. Yes, and I appreciate the opportunity to respond to this one because this is a key issue here. So the first problem is that the classification of students as offenders, Mm -hmm. that is uh, criminalizing children. And I think that once we get to know children, and and I was able to do this in my interviews, I realized that these children are not bad children. They are traumatized children. They're living in environments where they're shootings almost every day. They're living in an environment that has been politically neglected. They're living in an environment where law enforcement is always uh, late in, in some cases to respond. Uh, they can't rely on law enforcement in some cases. Uh, they're living in t- tough environments. And I think it's important that we hear them. It's important that we have services for them as schools. And what we've done nationally, and specifically in urban areas, is we've removed psychologists, we've removed social workers, and we've placed the burden on teachers. Mm-hmm. And that is just irresponsible. It's irresponsible to expect a teacher to do it all. And I agree that it does disrupt class because we've placed the entire burden on teachers. Yeah. We have placed 
is we've taken money away from the wraparound services, as the previous caller has, has said, and we've placed it in the hands of the criminal justice system. We've placed more money in the hands of law enforcement and metal detectors and guards than we have in social workers and psychologists, when in actuality, if we actually funded social workers, psychologists, and the services children needed, we may not need law enforcement, metal detectors, and guards, and we should never be classifying children as offenders when they're just in school and they're in a tough environment trying to make it out. Wow, wow. Uh, Glenn, again, thanks very much for the call and your comments. Let's go to Gay in Highland Park. Gay, welcome yes. to the show. Uh, hello, thank you for for uh, answering. Mm-hmm. I I have a, a friend who who has a mixed race son, and he was in a, a private school, and the private school um, he was in a pushing incident, and he was a kindergartner, and uh, they asked him to leave, and they told him not to come back, and my son had gone to the same school 40 years ago mm-hmm. and had an incident of the same sort. And that, at that time, they had a psychologist. They pulled him out and counseled him for some time. And he got everything straightened out and went on and, and did well. But uh, with this crop of teachers, they're very less experienced. Hmm. They are less trained in how to handle dealing with children. They don't know much about... Uh, breaking up a, a fight or a pushing incident, then they automatically call for uh, security and things like that. They don't really know enough like the old experienced teachers had. My, my mother was a teacher in a, a mixed-rate situation in Texas, and she handled all of that entirely by herself without any consequences to anyone mm-hmm. and and it managed everything well and it's just a lack of experience and even in the the principal's office of many of these schools in in handling any of this kind of altercations yeah gay I, I really appreciate your call and and that perspective that's something we haven't really talked about is the training that teachers get to be able to deal with these things and the level of experience that many teachers have or don't have dealing with different kinds of kids in different kinds of situations. Dr. Bell, talk some about what you learned in your research about how teachers are trained to manage kids who may be having an issue um, and, and whether we have too many teachers who don't have the right training or enough experience to be able to deal with it differently than what we're seeing? I think there's two issues here, one of which is teacher training. And I agree that teachers should be trained properly in terms of experience in urban contexts and some of the issues that children experience, trauma being one of them. I think it's important to be able to understand your the children that you educate and understand where they come from, their, their, their circumstances, their challenges, and see them as entire individuals and not just as these um, children are characterizing them as offenders, as we've done historically. I also think the other issue here that we really don't talk about is a sort of political violence. Uh, Research tells us that uh, you shouldn't have more than 20 students in a class because learning is the most effective when you have a teacher one to 20 ratio, pretty much. 
And when you place 40 students in a class, and we see this sort of exclusively in urban contexts, you've handicapped the teacher. Mm. You've, you've tied their hands and you've asked them to do um, twice the teaching with very little support. And the teacher doesn't have the time to get to know their, their students and uh, de-escalate some of these altercations beforehand. And then they just rely on suspension as a, as a first resort because they don't have the time. Because pulling one student aside when you have 35 other students in the class, it's just not feasible. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dr. Charles Bell, it was really great to have you back here on Detroit Today to talk about your new book, Suspended, Punishment, Violence, and the Failure of School Safety. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to switch subjects. There is a new one-hour film out that speculates about what Henry Ford might do and say if he visited Detroit in 2021, some hundred years after he was making big waves as the founder, really, of the auto industry here. I'm going to talk with Andy Kirshner, director of the new film, 10 Questions for Henry Ford. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have tuned in. What would Henry Ford do or say if he could travel in time back from the beginning of the 20th century to Detroit at the beginning of the 21st century here in 2021? That's the question that University of Michigan filmmaker Andy Kirshner explores in his new film, 10 Questions for Henry Ford. The film follows the automotive giant's ghost around southeast Michigan, visiting his crumbling old factories, Greenfield Village, and even the Detroit People Mover. And it delves into some of the most troubling and racist aspects of Ford's life and beliefs. 10 Questions for Henry Ford debuts today online as part of the Ojai Virtual Film Fest, and it runs through Sunday, November 14th. You can find more information about the film and how to view it at henryfordquestions.com. And joining me now is the director and writer of the film, Andy Kirshner. Andy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Really, really happy to be here. So I want to start with a clip from the film. Let's listen. People think we was in the business of making cars, but the truth is, we made men. We'd take the raw materials, say from Poland or Italy, Lithuania, and then we'd melt them all down into one big pot. We'd teach them how to dress, how to clean their houses, teach them English, and when we was all done, they'd come out the other end. 100% American. Perfectly interchangeable parts.
But there were some types you just couldn't melt down. No matter what, you couldn't fix them. You can quote me. The fact is, most men are lazy. If they can get out of a day's work, they will. And welfare is a cancer. And people eat too much sugar. So that clip really illustrates Ford's feelings about immigrants and what it meant to be an American. Andy, I wonder what you hope people will take away from your film in terms of understanding Ford's attitudes about these and other topics. Yeah, well, um, that's a that's a good clip to choose because um, it gets it gets to some of the heart of the film. I mean, part of what I'm interested in is these kind of larger themes in American history. And, um, you know, the sort of idea of the melting pot and also um, uh, who is really an American, who is not an American. These are sort of themes that, um, you know, kind of persist through American history and they're still kind of very much in the news these days. Um, And so Ford had this kind of idea about Americanization, right, that you take in this sort of raw material of of immigrants from all over the world. And through this process of of education, you were turning them into real Americans, which for Ford basically meant kind of Anglo-Saxon Americans, Uh, you know, and he had um, had not only English classes, but he had um, a whole sociological department that would go into people's homes and make sure that they were living the way that Henry Ford thought they should live. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, the this, the $5 day, for example, which was the, you know, the doubling of wages um, that sort of shook the industrial world in 1914 when, when Ford announced it. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that in order to get that wage, the, you know, the double wage, you had to um, basically submit to inspection in your home from Ford's investigators. And they had to make sure that you didn't have uh, borders in your house, that your house was clean, um, you know, and that you were basically um, living in a way that was um, sort of acceptable to to Henry Ford's sense of propriety. Um, so I guess, um, you know, big picture, it, it's it's Henry Ford, you know, his, his ghost, so he can be in the present, but it's also about looking at parallels between past and present, particularly the sort of interwar years between World War I and World War II um, and where we are now. And I see kind of a lot of um, a lot of themes um, being sort of parallel, a lot of issues being parallel in terms of like uh, anti-immigrant exclusionism, mm-hmm. this kind of rise of demagogues, um, domestic terrorism, you know, you had the, the KKK, in the 20s and 30s, very, very active um, in, in Michigan, and especially in Michigan, um, Indiana, Ohio, were big Klan centers. Mm-hmm. You had um, the Klan very involved in Detroit politics. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I see, I see parallels. Yeah, yeah. So give me a sense of what you think Henry Ford would think about Detroit and Southeast Michigan if he were here today, the, uh, the, the film does a wonderful job, I think, of trying to place him in this this current context. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, Ford's attitude towards cities, um, you know, I, I don't think he would, um, 
you know, just to speculate, <laughs> he would probably be like, he didn't, he didn't like cities. You know, he grew up on a farm. He was born in 1863, a few weeks after the civil, uh, after the battle of Gettysburg. And he saw this kind of transformation of, you know, Dearborn and Detroit. I mean, Detroit was already kind of an industrial center, but, but in a small way, it was a manufacturing center in, in Ford's time. But he saw this kind of transformation over his lifetime from, um, which he was largely responsible for, um, of, you know, this kind of urbanization with um, the city expanding massively, um, you know, the, the sort of farmland that he grew up on in, in Dearborn um, becoming this sort of industrial hub. And then also people from all over the world um, coming to Detroit. So I think he already, you know, he was already upset by the transformations that were happening in Detroit, like back in 1914. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think coming today and like seeing, you know, the um, the Highland Park plant, you know, where we we shot one of the scenes, the, the sort of home of the Model T, mm-hmm. seeing kind of it in its current state of decay, um, he would be, you know, he'd obviously be very upset that his his creation had, had fallen into disrepair. But mm-hmm. but I, I think his attitudes would probably be pretty pretty unchanged. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I also wonder if you can talk just a little about, so you're, if you're making art like this, some of what you're doing is obviously speculating about mm-hmm. uh, someone who lived in a very different time than, than we do, but, but you're not mm-hmm. just grasping it at, at anything. I mean, you're basing it on things that he did and said uh, then uh, talk to me about where you feel like the limits might have been here. Mm-hmm. Like, what were you hesitant to to speculate about? What were you? What conclusions yeah. did you maybe not want to draw about? Well, the, I'm, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the reason it's called Ten Questions for Henry Ford is because these, the, you know, most of them are kind of questions that I still have about him. Mm-hmm. For example. You know, Ford was a notorious anti-Semite. He was probably the most influential American Semite, anti-Semite through his publications, uh, the Dearborn Independent, and these this articles that he published for for two years, kind of blaming Jews for everything from World War One to short skirts to uh, the corrupting influence of jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, all this kind of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, you know, the film is very closely based on the historical record. Um, you know, so I, I went to, I spent a lot of time in the Benson Ford archives, kind of looking at oral histories, looking at Ford's notebooks, looking mm-hmm. at, at interviews uh, that he had done with newspapers. And what's left are still some of these questions that I have. Like, for example, why did Henry Ford hate Jews? You know, it's so, it's so puzzling. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, I mean, certainly anti-Semitism was something that was not unique to Ford in that era and, you know, still still not unique to Ford. But why did he have such a passion about it? You know, why did he, like, kind of make it part of his life's mission to, um, you know, to publish these these articles mm-hmm. that were so destructive? Um, and also other questions I have are about, you know, kind of his, uh, his relationship with his son, Edsel, uh, which was... Um, you know, it, in in early days in Edsel's childhood, very loving, very close relationship. Edsel idolized his father, and they kind of became increasingly estranged mm-hmm. uh, as Edsel became an adult and asserted more of his independence. So, and and Henry would kind of 
you know, Edsel, most people don't know, but Edsel was president of the Ford Motor Company mm-hmm. for longer than anybody and mm-hmm. actually did a lot of great things. Um, you know, created the design department, commissioned the, the um, Detroit Industry Murals by Diego Rivera, he's a great philanthropist. Um, and, and Henry would constantly undermine all of Edsel's efforts, you know, that like were destructive, not only to Edsel, but destructive to the, to the company. Mm-hmm. And um, so another question is, why did you undermine Edsel? You know, what What was it that motivated that? Right. So those are sort of the questions that I, I, I can't answer. Like I can't, I have I have ideas, but there's <laughs> n- there's nothing like, there's nothing conclusive about it. So what I try to do in the movie is, is really pose the questions sort of based on the evidence that there is based on the historical record. And then, and then it's, you know, I let, I try as much as possible, I try to let Henry sort of say in his own world. Speak words. for himself. Sure. Yeah, answer answer the questions in the way I think he would have answered. So if you asked him, for example, why do you hate Jews? He would have said, no, of course I don't hate them. I, you know, I have great friends who are Jews. Um, that would have been his answer, but it's a totally unsatisfying answer. <laughs> sure. You know, so. Sure. So, so I also wonder what you think Henry Ford would make of uh, the fact that his hometown, really, of Dearborn... Uh, the place that that he is more responsible perhaps than anyone else for shaping, just last week elected its first Arab-American and Muslim mayor. Uh, again, it's I think it's very yeah. difficult sometimes to imagine people living in a time where something like that was impossible, mm-hmm. uh, experiencing it as we do today. But it seems like right. that would that would really, I would think, shock. Henry Ford, and not in a good way. Yeah, well, I mean, he, you know, to not to put too fine a point on it, but he was, uh, you know, he was essentially a white supremacist. And I mean that in the sense of, you know, he believed that the white race, as he, you know, as he would have described it as Anglo-Saxon, was superior to all other races in terms of civilization. That said, you know, he had, um, you know, he was, he was largely responsible for why there is, and such a large Arab American population in the United States. I mean, he brought you know a lot of Syrian immigrants, mm-hmm. a lot of Egyptian immigrants, um, you know, people from Yemen and that that part of the world, you know, came to um, came to Detroit, came to Dearborn, worked in the factories, established communities. So, in a certain sense, like having having a mayor, um, you know, who's Arab American was, um, you know, kind of a it's an inevitability, right? In, indirect and inevitability, and you know, Ford depended on immigrants for his his labor force, especially sure. in the early years at Highland Park, and then and then became um, you know uh, more of an African American labor force in the in the 30s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he he, I don't know what he would have thought. You know, I mean, on mm-hmm. one hand, he he wanted. He wanted everyone to come to America and become, you know, Americanized, as right. he would say it. Right. On the other hand, and so I think he probably would have been uncomfortable at with, you know, expressions of cultures that were not um, kind of within his his American wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Andy Kirshner, filmmaker and chair of the Department of Performing Arts Technology at the University of Michigan School of music. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about 10 questions for Henry Ford. Thanks so much for the interview. I appreciate it. Sure. Bye-bye. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. 
Join WDET and public radio stations around the country who are celebrating Public Radio Music Day today, November 10th. Public Radio is, of course, dedicated to connecting you with music that enriches your life. And WDET does as good a job as that as any station all over the country. You can learn more about how stations like WDET support emerging artists and keep you connected to new music at publicradiomusicday.org. This is 1019 WDETFM, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.